Welcome to the Deep End by On Deck, a podcast for visionary builders, creators, and thinkers discuss world-changing stories and ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozlov. It's just like, again, working at any big company versus running your own thing. You have to be willing to deal with the rejection and the pain of building a product and iterating on that product. And really kind of what we're trying to do is make it easier to kind of be that engine for you to manage the relationship between you and your students. On Deck is where ambitious people worldwide go to start companies, find their next roles, and invest in their careers. The Deep End invites the founders, operators, and investors from the on-deck community and beyond to turn their experiences into the ideas others need to start their own odysseys. Let's dive in. Joining me this week in the Deep End is Ish Bade, founder and CEO of Virtually. Virtually is building what it envisions as the Shopify for online schools. Ish and I spend the episode enthusiastically discussing the ongoing disruption of the higher education system. On-deck and Virtually have both built their businesses on the back of cohort-based courses. Ish outlines why they're here to stay, highlighting how engaging it is for a student when everyone else is on the same journey. To learn more about how Virtually can run the back office for your online education business, you can head to tryvirtually.com or follow Ish on Twitter at IshBade, I-S-H-B-A-I-D. Let's get into the episode. Ishbade, welcome to the Deep End. Hey, Marshall. Excited to be here. Big fan of the show. And I'm a big fan of you. We just did a, the off-recording version where I praised Ish's podcast. It's called Reshaping Education. It's really, really interesting. I was seeing that a lot of folks in the broader tech community launched podcasts. You kind of go at it for a week or two. You say a lot of topics that are mostly driven by Twitter engagement, then it falls off. But this has been a really substantive, really interesting podcast that if you're at all interested in this broader conversation around tech and education, I cannot recommend enough. Here's what I want to do. I want to talk about the education topic, but because this is the deep end, you obviously have co-founded a company. Let's just start real quick by you introducing yourself. Tell us about, you know, virtually, and then we'll get into the actual like meaty ideas part of the education system. Yeah, no, love it. So my name's Ish, founder and CEO of Virtually. I started the company actually almost exactly three years ago uh, after leaving my cushy software engineering job at Facebook and uh, started Virtually, which the mission from day one has always been how do we enable live online learning? And a big reason that that's just a topic that's dear to my heart is, is my family, we're actually immigrants. And so uh, we migrated to North America when I was just five and my parents had these amazing credentials. My dad's an MBA, my mom had a master's in English. And despite all that, they were actually working very low level jobs, three jobs, we had one car living in the basement of uh, somebody else's home in the suburbs of Toronto. and it was just through online learning, online education, that my parents were able to kick ass and move up to uh, what they're doing now. And uh, my mom and I actually concurrently learned how to code through YouTube videos. And uh, that put her on the path to becoming an engineering manager at a healthcare IT company. And it put me on the path to working at Facebook. And just a couple of years into Facebook, had to start a bitch and wanted to go build something. And I just knew that like online education had just so much potential. It had touched me, it had touched other people's lives. But at the time, it just it felt like a single player kind of solo experience that was very isolated. And I knew that if you could make learning online feel like learning in person, you would make education so much more accessible, so much more affordable. So it was just such a powerful mission. Had to had to leave Facebook, try try my hand at building that out. And and today, where it virtually is is what we've tried to build is we call it the Shopify for online schools. We are like the command center for anybody to build live online learning experiences. So everything around facilitating events, tracking student engagement, automating all the communication. Um, and so while there's a lot of learning platforms out there that kind of do the front end, you think about Circle, you think about Discord, you think about Maven, that's all like kind of the front end. We handle all kind of the back office 
side of things of running an online education business. And a big part of that falls into this play, uh, this kind of trend that we, I'm sure we'll talk about it, which is what we like to call entrepreneurship, educators who are also entrepreneurs. Yeah. So this is, okay, a couple of different places I want to go. Let's just start out here. The online education space is a space that there's been lots of big claims around for for decades. And even before it was online, there was talk about how TV and radio could reimagine what the higher education or just even K through 12 schooling would look like. But COVID, especially just March 2020, that first year, really forced everyone to jump into the deep end. There, I said it. Um, and w- with these spaces. So what did we learn over the past two years? This is both masking this as, you know, um, your virtual experience, but also as a person who speaks to people in this space when it comes to podcasting. What what were the big learnings you'd say top, you know, pretty just the top level learnings we've learned about the space just when you actually had to put pedal to the metal? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a ton, but the kind of big takeaway is that it works and that education doesn't need to be in person. Uh, I think obviously on the podcast you mentioned one of the things we like to dive a lot into is kind of the history of education, online education in specific. But, you know, we talk about just tr- just general trends of education since the start of time. And one of the things is it's it's always been community that is the, at the core of learning. It, it's learning is just feedback. It's like you do something and you get positive or negative reinforcement. But the problem with online education, the way it's been for the t- past 10 years, is there has been no feedback. And it's because it's your handed kind of curriculum and you're expected to just go through this by yourself. And what really changed with COVID was that Zoom was finally good enough. Because of COVID, you couldn't really, you couldn't do any sort of learning in person. So it was all online. And the re- really key unlock was that community. The fact that you are put, and I know, you know, cohort-based courses, it's just like that big trend that was really hot last year. I think it's pulled down a little bit, but I, I still think it's here to stay. It's this idea of like when you're put in to a community where everybody's at the same stage and has a shared purpose for the duration of this program, not only do you learn really quickly because you get that feedback, but you also build really deep relationships with everybody because they're on the same journey as you. And I think that is what has just made online education uh, work in, in the last two years. And we're seeing the rise of these kind of cohort-based programs, these online schools, these totally virtual academies, which are changing people's lives, truly. That's interesting. So A, last year, explain for the audience what the hype around cohort-based courses were, and then explain why it seems like it's cooled down, yet you are still bullish on the future. Well, I think what's funny is that we were working on in the space, obviously, before we even had this term, and then we'll be working long after it. I think the reason people just got excited about it was obviously you had some big players, Gag and Biani, who, you know, uh, co-founder Udemy comes out and, well, coins the term with his co-founders and announces that they're launching this big company called Maven. And so I think there was a lot of excitement happening there. And kind of the idea of core-based learning, it's, it's pretty popular now is that essentially you teach kind of live learning experiences in these cohorts that last anywhere from six weeks to six months and, and cover a very specific skill. And and the hype has just been around that it's just more, it's transformational. Like you get education that you get to learn from the experts in a matter of weeks, not years, very relevant industry skills for a fraction of the cost when it comes to university. That's the hype. And what's caused it to cool down a bit? <laughs> uh, Twitter, I guess people people get bored. People move on to the next thing. There's DAOs, there's Web3. But I mean, it's 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 cooled down in terms of just, I think maybe, maybe I guess I'm a little bit disillusioned because I guess I'm in that kind of tech uh, investor bubble on Twitter. But as an industry, it hasn't cooled down. If anything, it's accelerating. It's, it's me and uh, my podcast co-host, Will Mann, used to talk about this all the time, which is when it comes to online education, we're literally in the first pitch of the first inning. Like this is going to be around forever. And I think one of the reasons that it's so powerful is it's it's specifically powerful for people who didn't have access to education before. You know, I think when people talk about education is broken, they talk about K to 12, they talk about university. Uh, but I don't think enough people talk about adult education, uh, people who actually need the education the most. These are single moms. These are veterans. These are people who can't just put their life on pause and move halfway across the country to go through a university program. And 
rack up tens of thousands of dollars of debt in the process. Uh, but these are the people who, if they had access to this education, would change their life. And I remember the first time I saw this, this was actually pre-COVID, I saw it with Lambda School, and they were doing this. They were taking people who had, basically were making minimum wage, and within under a year, were making six-figure salaries. And that's how I knew. I knew that this model could work, and it has been. Because now it's like from the comfort of your home, you can learn and you can pick up skills from the industry experts. You don't have to go to a college town halfway across the country. And that is just, oh, that is just so exciting to me. And I love the way you answered my question, because when you said cool down, I was thinking of, oh, maybe a company IPO'd and the stock isn't doing too hot, but you actually mean at a narrative level cool down. So that must be set up a really good question, which I'm curious if your answer for. I see people tweeting about Web3 learning DAOs. Like you said, a lot of these people were tweeting about cohort-based education. All these things are operating under this foundation, as you said, where it's been demonstrated that online education works. For people who are interested in your space, but often find themselves trapped in Twitter bubbles of various sorts, what do you think are the facts around what works and what doesn't work? What customer cohorts are interested in that should ground your thinking? That's that's a really good one because it's, I think also there was this kind of narrative. I feel like every technology has this like hype period. You know, we, we saw it with the internet and then there was the burst, you know, you saw it with crypto a couple of times and it, and it's, you know, it's still happening. And, and I think it's, it's this hype period is when you first see like some version of this working and then there's kind of this like gold rush effect that happens. And then you realize it's really hard. Not anybody can do this, right? So like, for example, one of our customers, Sully Abdul, he started his core-based course like a year and a half ago that generates two and a half million dollars a year. Um, you know, David Perel also also using a virtually to power kind of the back end, also kind of a really massive program. And so I think people saw this working, even, even with the all the on-deck fellowships, people saw the model working and there was this gold rush. And people went to create these online learning programs. And I think a big part of it is that it's it's not easy. Like the, the people doing this have spent years and years perfecting their craft and becoming like the industry experts and building that audience and having that distribution. And so I think a, a way that it may kind of might have cooled down is just the fact that a lot of people tried it and realized that it's not that easy. And another part with kind of cohorts, cohort-based learning as well, is a trend that we're starting to see is this kind of, it's hard in that you have to re-earn that revenue, like cohort to cohort. If you're building an online education business, every cohort, you have to find new students. And so actually the model we're seeing kind of shift to birds is actually what I feel like on deck pioneered, which is cohort-based communities, where it's, you go through obviously this cohort with, you know, people who are, you know, in, in the same journey as you get maybe kind of more hands-on help. But after that, then it kind of feeds into a community. And you can be a part of that community as long as you want. And so I think that is the model where we're seeing, where it's like, it's less you're signing up for these cohorts as much as you're signing up for these cohorts. And then you then you can opt into the community to get that kind of additional support. Man, that is so interesting. And what I want to think a little bit about then is your earlier phrasing around online education works. Everything you're saying is reminding me of the Substack phenomenon, which is, for example, it's been proven that if you are a good writer and you're entrepreneurial and you have distribution, you can make much, much more what your publication was paying you for, um, given just the nature of subscription revenue. But to your point around it being really hard and there is a lack of support structure. You're not going to have the editor you used to have. You have to figure out your healthcare. There are a lot of people who jumped into the space, calculated, actually, this isn't the best fit for me, and either like went back to their previous publications or switched to a different model. So it's just interesting how we're seeing around these business model, internet-driven business model innovations, people having to sort through where their category best is because you could lean too much into, wow, Glenn Greenwald makes a million dollars. Matt Taibbi's making $2 million, only making 80K at Vox. Well, okay, there's a lot of steps between those numbers and I'm sure the dynamic is exactly the same when it comes to course creation. Okay, so this is super helpful. Let's think about this in a couple of different ways. One, in that Substack example I just gave, you are seeing 
mostly opinion writers who are at publications who have loyal readerships, they are underpaid relative to how much deep interest there are. So Andrew Sullivan is at New York Magazine. He's not quite the right fit editorially, but, you know, he's making, you know, a good like six figure salary. But it turns out when he leaves, he actually makes more money. I'm interested in the fact that when who, who, who are the people who are doing the course creation model that you're describing here? Is there a version of that story? Because I kind of, you, I'm sure you've seen this on Twitter. There are folks who talk about in the future, you're going to have the best professors in the world not have to go to these higher education institutions. I'm not sure you've seen that legacy to future transition. It's been creating new markets with new types of course creators. So how do you just think about this dynamic? Well, I think it's it's not for everyone. Like, I think like if you want to be just like a teacher, like you are at a kind of a university and isolated from kind of all the business mechanics, and then you can do that, right? You can you're very you are very much isolated. You know, you know, professors they're going to have basically give or let, give or take the same number of students like semester to semester, and they it for them one thing that they're not really thinking about is like. Are these students having a great experience? Maybe some are, but I mean, a lot of them are academics and researchers. Like their incentives aren't tied to making sure that they change their students' lives. But that's very different uh, for these entrepreneurs. They actually have to make sure that their students have an amazing experience because if they don't, they're not going to have another cohort. They're going to be out of business. And so one of the things that it's it's great, and it's also what makes this uh, field a little bit challenging is that you have to be absolutely customer obsessed and you have to treat your course like a product. Because what happens here is whatever, if it, if your students love your program, they will, they will be your engine for growth. They will be the ones who give you testimonials. They'll be the ones who become your alumni mentors. And eventually when you hire, you'll hire from your alumni network as well. And so if you don't, if they don't have an amazing experience, very quickly your cohort sizes are going to get smaller and smaller, and eventually the business just doesn't work out. And so it's just like, again, working at any big company versus running your own thing. You have to be willing to deal with the rejection and the pain of building a product and iterating on that product. And really, kind of what we're trying to do is make it easier to kind of be that engine for you to manage the relationship between you and your students. So kind of our internal code name for what we're building is actually like a student relationship manager. Is like, how do we make it easy for anybody who's running one of these online businesses to co continually collect data and feedback and iterate aggressively? It's just something we haven't seen in education before. But I think that's that's what makes it so exciting is because, because that revenue isn't a given. It has to be earned. And that's what actually makes these educators actually create these amazing educational programs that's disrupting higher ed. I'm interested in definitions. So earlier when you said online learning works, what's your definition of works? That could mean to me community and cohorts, like you said. That could mean the credential gets you a job higher, gets you a job. It could be that you learned something. What is your definition of works when it comes to this space? I would say transformation. It's it's the fact that there has been a transformation. Like you went through this program and your goal was to obtain X skill, achieve Y, and you were able to do that. And the problem with traditional, I guess, online education was it didn't do that because you didn't get that feedback. Right. Whether it was through not having those live sessions, not having that guidance, mentorship, having kind of peer feedback or have the, having that community to lean on. Most people didn't see that transformation. Now, yes, you most of this, these types of live learning, you don't walk out with a credential. That's something people talk about a lot, but you walk out with skills. And I think that is one of the really exciting things about this type of learning, specifically adult learning. Is that I'm I'm a learning addict. I'm taking all these like cohort based courses all the time. But the reason why I find it so much fulfilling than my random discrete mathematics class, you know, X203 at North Campus at 9 a.m. on a Tuesday, Thursday at Michigan was the fact that every time I take one of these courses, I know how it connects to the larger picture. I'm not just being told, like, oh, you're gonna go through these, you know, go through this curriculum and one day you're gonna be able to connect the dots. No way. Like, I'm taking these courses because I'm like, wow, like I'm gonna take 
Dickie Bush's Ship 30 for 30, because I know that like if I learn to become a better writer and grow my audience on Twitter, that's just ultimately going to help the business. And I want to pick up that skill. What is the cohort of individuals best suited for the style of course you're describing? Because like I said, my credential from University of Oregon, I didn't learn that much, but the credential is great. Um, it's, 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 an, it's an important feature. Same thing goes for, goes for Michigan, all those different bits. So it's not as if someone looking for a credential is going to say, let me go straight to Dickie Bush's ship 30 for 30. Because like you said, you're trying to not only pick up a skill set, but the transformation part, if your goal is to gain followers and become a better writer, that's straightforward. So who, who is that customer? Is this someone in their 20s? Are they a frustrated Facebook employee who wants to do something different? Who, who are we actually talking about here? That's a really good question. I, I actually think it's it's so interesting. Having taken some of these courses, like some of the people who I find that have the biggest transformation I've seen is a lot of these courses at the end have kind of this like you know, reflecting on, you know, your past six weeks, how did it go? And it's often, I like, I see these, like, people in their, like, 50s and 60s who, like, come up onto, like, the Zoom stage and just, you know, break down into tears and just talk about how they, like, found community. And what's really amazing is there's there's people out there who just, honestly, it, it's it's more than the education. And I think it, this is, like, a common thing in, in you hear in the education space, which is, you, you know, you come for the content that you do for the community. Um, core-based courses use that to sell all the time. And it's it's really true. I mean, like at the at the really core of it, we're kind of getting philosophical now, but like people just don't want to be alone. And it's just like not having to learn something by yourself. There's something that's just life-changing about that to to basically talk to people who are kind of at the same stage of your journey. And and I think it works for anybody who's obviously trying to achieve, learn something, achieve a specific goal, but wants to do it with the people who are at the same stage as them. And the really nice thing is that this type of learning can happen with the most crazy niches you can possibly imagine uh, because, because it's online. Uh, you know, one of the things that with online education is you have to think about, you can't think about percentages, you have to think about absolute numbers. If you're creating a course for the 0.0001% of the internet, that could still be, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And you could still build a multi-seven-figure business off of this really incredibly niche topic. And and that's just because the internet is just so wide. And there's all these niches. And and these types of courses couldn't have emerged in person because there's not enough critical mass, not enough critical mass in terms of instructors. And there's not enough da- demand. But stretched out across the internet, there is. So we were just speaking around what seems like this is a very post-college market. Can you talk about what's really happening and what gets you excited in the, let's say, the K-12 through space and then also the directly undergraduate graduate school space? That's a good question. I think um, this is something I don't think a ton about. That being said, I am um, one of my investors uh, founded this awesome program called Synthesis School, which uh, is based off of... Uh, Elon, the Musk, the school that Elon Musk had started for his kids. And it uses it, the, one of the co-founders of that school is also co-founder for synthesis. And it's this idea of using very kind of game-based learning uh, for kids to kind of supplement their education, basically using games to teach them valuable skills. Um, I think that's really interesting and exciting. I haven't thought too much about K-12, but uh, ways that you can engage students online, I think is really exciting because it's one thing we don't think about is, but like online education is diverse by default. Like it's so much, something we think about so much is like, how do you introduce diversity in thinking? And people spend so much time, you know, thinking about, you know, going which schools you go to, which colleges you go to and making sure they're diverse. You actually have to be intentional to, you actually have to put in a lot of work to not be diverse when it comes to online education. So I think, there's something really powerful there about if you can get like kids exposed to a little bit of diverse thinking from the get-go. Uh, I also really kind of love the model that I think Soros, Soros Schools uh, is doing where it's kind of a virtual high school. And I think it's really good for actually people who maybe feel bullied or kind of introverted in kind of a typical in-person school because that, that it's just so hard. That dynamic is so hard to pull off. In, in kind of in a virtual environment. And, and I've heard that like people who 
kids who struggle from being a little bit different in these in-person schools are thriving in these virtual schools. So I think these are things that I think get me excited about kind of earlier side of education. And this is interesting then. Where then, because you said these words, where does the disruption of the higher education system come in? Yeah. I, I think it comes from the fact when people look around and they see programs like Lambda School, like these kind of online boot camps that provide you relevant industry skills from taught by experts within months, not years for a fraction of the cost. And they realize that you can basically, this is an alternative path to landing high paying jobs. I think that is a pretty big unlock. Uh, I do want to, one, just when we talk about definitions, I do want to differentiate kind of around boot camps versus cohort-based courses. Um, kind of what the definition we've kind of arrived at is boot camps, you can kind of think of them as reskilling. Um, often that's how they're used is when people want to transition careers, they tend to be full-time, they tend to be pretty intensive. Uh, whereas cohort-based courses tend to be upskilling where you're learning one very specific skills and it tends to be part-time, it tends to be a lot less involved and it tends to be shorter as well. So I think boot camps are already showing that they are an alternative path to, to college. And I think it's just a model that's just going to continue to take off. Um, it's, yeah, I that, that's what I'll say about that. Yeah, it's it's interesting because as I'm hearing you describe this, I just keep coming back to the fact that a lot of folks made really big claims about how COVID was going to change higher education, especially undergraduate universities. And I think that bias came out because most people have a variety of experiences with undergrad, especially at the, let's just say, high price level, which seems to be graduate school is really the place where there's the most room to run, given what you're talking about. Because end of the day, college was great. Um, I know not everyone has a great college experience, but I went to a state school. I was in state, so it wasn't particularly expensive. Great, 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 great time. Would, would not skip that over and over again. But what I kept finding, until honestly I launched a podcast and then it served as my credential, funnily enough, I kept having this debate of, man, do you need to go to grad school? Man, I don't. I really don't want to go to grad school. I, I, I don't... That, that's like the differing experience I'm just noticing. So I'm just curious, as, as you're thinking about what's put aside the undergrad experience, it seems to me just the, once again, because this goes to your point, grad school where so much of the pitch is the cohort, so much of the pitch is getting a specific skill, you're reaching a point in your career where you need to transition. I think this is what OnDeck does a great job of filling. Talk about the graduate school kill zone. That th This really seems to appeal to folks around. I mean, I have a master's degree and it was absolutely useless. <laughs> and, and you're right. I actually, if, you know, I think. In, in what? In, in what? So it was a computer science. Um, okay. It was kind of, so Michigan has this program where it's, it's if you had a specific, like, you know, three, six or above, uh, you could essentially, for one more year, it's, they just up, they upsold me. You're like, you know, one more year, you can get a master's <laughs> degree. It's like you're at like a, at the cashier and there's like, oh, you know, there's a candy bar just staring at you. It's just like, oh, just, you know, just tack that on. I'm going to add that to the bill. Um, so I actually graduated undergrad a year early. And so the only reason that I did my master's was not for the education, but specifically so I could stay around, stick around college for a fourth year. Um, but I think you're right. Like college, I think undergrad is much, so much harder to disrupt because it's, the NPS is actually really high. Like you, you talk to people who, uh, who went through college, they love it. And, but you actually ask, you dig into that a little bit and you ask them like, why? Like, they don't talk about the education. <laughs> they talk about everything else. It's, it's the community, it's the network. And so I think with graduate school, I think the reason that I'm, I'm actually more bullish on undergrad than I'm in graduate school is it's, it's so much about, it is about upskilling and it's about, hey, like, whatever I did for my undergrad, it's not panning out for my career. And so when you go to graduate school, it tends to be more on the education uh, and network. Um, whereas I feel like so much more of the undergrad is the experience and, and the community. And so 
I think that is so much easier to replace with these live online learning programs, these core based courses, online communities. There's it just so much easier to assemble than than the undergrad experience. That's my thesis. And given the thesis, because um, once again, I cannot understate to the audience how many really interesting interviews you've done. I'm sure something you notice in any conversation around higher education or even just K through 12 schooling, people's personal biases and experiences come out very quickly. So you can tell in this conversation that I had a good time in college. I can tell when someone had a bad time in high school. I can tell when someone had a bad homeschooling experience and a good, it goes both directions, but I'm, I'm curious, what is your vision for, and I don't need something epic and gorgeous and incredible, but just as you think of how people should have their careers go out, you know, what, what do you think that should look like? Careers go out. Let me give, let me give an example because that wasn't as eloquent as it could have been. The worst thing I feel that people a little older than us experienced was just the tracked treadmill trap. This idea of, well, you're 26, you have to go get a grad degree. Why do you have to get a grad degree? Because, well, the VP above you has a grad degree and they had a grad degree. So there's a cycle. I remember my uh, my dad was talking to me when I was 23 and he said, well, he has a PhD. He's like, are you going to get your PhD? I'm like, no. He's like, well, you have to get your PhD. That's your, that's your union card. So for my vision of higher education and what this should look like, a career ladder to me is I want an option where, look, PhDs make sense for plenty of people. MBAs make sense for some people. Not getting either of these things makes sense for other people. I actually want a world where we remove as much arbitrary narrative driven, you do this because of this reason, but it's not an actual tangible reason as possible. And we just have a world where somebody is doing a MFA in creative writing, but another person just needs to do ship 30 for 30. And it's a, situ that's a situation where, and this is really going to be, and this is the problem, parents and competitive peers are probably the biggest obstacles to the world I'm describing. So for example, parents, oh, am I feeling lame if my child isn't keeping up with the Joneses and getting a grad degree? And then competitive peers, oh, you're not going to grad school. I'm going to grad school. And then you get that sense of shame that you're, I'm just, I'm about, I, I'm about to turn 30. So I've just escaped that. Um, I succeeded and made it without it, but it's a real thing. So Given what I just said, I just love any sort of like how you think about it, any responses you have, all those sorts of bits. I, I mean, I think one of the things that's just so absurd about uh, college, I'll give you two stats. Uh, one is that only 27% of people who graduate college actually use the major that they got. Um, so mo the vast majority of people don't actually use what they learn in the industry. Another one, uh, this is actually really crazy, which is more than half, I, I believe it's 51% of college graduates are either unemployed or working a job that doesn't require a college degree. Um, so one of the things that's just really staggering about the internet and how it's changed kind of our relationship with work and education is there was kind of this notion that, hey, you get this like degree and then you would have this education for the entirety of your career, which was great when industries were pretty static because of the internet and how fast information is spreading. Industries are disrupted on the regular. And the problem is, what have you learned, you know, in college in four or five years is irrelevant. It's obsolete. And especially if you're working in technology and you're working in an internet business. And so if you want to progress throughout your career, you need to be continually upskilling and reskilling. This idea of you get a degree once and then you don't educate again, that is dead. It's just, it's not going to be the way it works. And you, we're going to start to see that like, hey, the people who are progressing in their career, oh, wow, they took this course. Oh, they joined this community. And kind of what you're talking about right now is obviously a little bit around credentialing where, you know, big companies, you know, it doesn't matter if we find value in these core-based courses, big companies and, you know, the, the employers, they care about the credentials. But Marshall, you know, my, my thesis is how this is going to actually very quickly start to unbundle is... What, you know, yes, big companies kind of stand, set the standard for hiring, but what are big companies before they get there? They're startups. And if you look at startup founders right now and how they're hiring, it's completely different. 
when I was hiring my software engineers, I did not care that they had a college degree. I just cared what they could do. And when I look around at my peers, my, you know, my, my fellow YC matchmates, they're thinking about it in the same way. And these startup founders are the ones who are going to build the next generation of great businesses. And those big businesses will set the standard. And so right now, I think it's still too close. I mean, the internet is still too new that this, this idea hasn't caught fire, but it's inevitable. This is interesting. I'm sure you've noticed it. I don't want to say it's fashionable to drop out of school because A, that's me responding to a very specific Twitter bubble dynamic that you and I are very well aware of, but is not indicative of even the broad majority of folks who even go to elite schools. But that being said, I'm wondering that as it becomes acceptable, what even even on the East Coast, I met I met someone who went to University of Pennsylvania, um, you know, great Ivy League school. He dropped out six years ago. It was a big deal when he did this in his peer group. He said, oh yeah, now uh, when I meet people my age, it's not as much of a big deal. Um, this is really a phenomenon that seems to be accelerated by COVID. What do you think opportunity-wise there is for folks who are looking to build products and courses and experiences that serve either this cohort of young people who either dropped out of school or just never went to school in the first place? Um, this could be everything from in real life community to specific metric empirically driven learning experiences. What, what, what do you think about the cohort I'm describing? Because it's not huge, but it seems to me to be a very valuable one. I mean, I think those are the people who are going to be the easiest to go after in a lot of ways. Um, and I think the reason for that is because they're very much people who it's because they dropped out. It's not that because they don't love learning, but they want learning with a purpose, right? Like, they're, they want to figure things out themselves. And the problem is the college just doesn't connect the dots for them. Like, just like I was sitting in, you know, my discrete mathematics class, it just didn't make sense. Like, how does this get to me, get me where I want to go? The people who dropped out was, I think a, a lot of them are trying to accomplish something, have something in mind, and they want to find a path to get it. And I actually think that these, these experiences, these online communities, they provide that path and, and a very straightforward one where they can justify it in their heads. Like, oh, this makes sense to me. Like, like I think like even on deck, when you talk about like how on deck got its start, it was the ODF fellowship, right? It was this, this around of people who like, who basically had dropped out of big tech or were thinking about dropping out of big tech and they were looking to figure out what's next for them. But being able to do it in kind of a structured programming with other people in the same stage, I mean, that is, it gives you a lot of comfort um, and it, it gives you a stepping stone to that next thing. Man, dropping out of big tech is a, is a, it's a funny phrase because if you get it, you get it. And if you don't get it, it sounds kind of random, but I really, <laughs> at this point in my career, I get it and find it very funny. Okay. So in, in the last few minutes here, I want to turn the tables and focus on your podcasting, but especially your, your podcasting given this space, because it's fascinating to me that you are, like you said, geeking out on the subject. You're running a company that serves this space. And then you're also hosting a podcast. And what I love about podcasting is I just see this as a really effective hosting a podcast is one of the most effective ways to learn, in my opinion, because it means you just talk to smart, interesting people all day. Not all day for you because you have a that whole company thing. For me, it means talking to interesting people all day. So let's take this a couple different angles. Number one. What is a conception you held about your space that has been disproven or you just no longer agree with based on interviews you've done? So when I think back to some of my favorite interviews, and we've, we've done a lot. Um, so, oh man, it's been, it's been two years. I think, you know, it, it just comes back to the origin story of why I started the podcast in the first place, which was just this, like COVID was happening. And just like you, Marshall, I just wanted to learn. Like, I didn't even call it a podcast at first. I was just like, I just hit up a bunch of interesting people in the space. And I was like, I want to get your thoughts on what's happening right now. Can we just have a recorded conversation? And then I started publishing them. And I, I just, you know, eventually, like, people weren't really sure what I was asking for them. So I was like, okay, sure, it's a podcast. But And then I put it out there, had 
no kind of intention that people would be listening. And it turns out people were listening and I was getting some great feedback. In terms of like biggest breakthroughs, it's, it's into things of, that were disproven. That's a really good one. I, I guess I was definitely more bullish on this disruption that we were talking about. I think specifically kind of this undergrad disruption. I, I like, I looked at kind of boot camps like Lambda School and I was like, isn't it obvious, right? That like everybody will be doing this. And I think actually I got a decent amount of pushback from individuals saying that, no, 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 you're missing that it's college. That's not what college is. That's not people's interpretation of college. So that was probably, probably the biggest one where, and, and it, it, it's, it's true. I mean, like even, even, you know, I talk about it being kind of disruptive, but it hasn't happened yet. Like still vast majority of people go to college, take the traditional route. I think it's going to take some time, but I think the real disruption happens where, where you were talking about graduate school. Now I'll do the easier version of the, of the question, which is what is something that you held for as a preconception that has just been hammered into? Yep. I knew it. Or yep. The conventional wisdom was just because once again, you've done a lot of interviews and as someone who does a lot of interviews too, sometimes things would be hyper reinforced and sometimes they won't be. So I'm curious, what has just been total broad area of agreement from folks in your space? It's just who's doing the teaching, right? I think the, it just comes down to, would you rather learn from kind of this academic researcher who is teaching just because they have to, uh, not because they want to, it's, it's, you know, part of their tenure track. Or would you rather learn from somebody who's not only a practitioner and knows the space inside and out, but loves teaching? And that that is, I think, my favorite part about you know running virtually and all the people that we get to work with is they are educators at heart. Actually, um, most people who are coming to us who kind of are, are in this creator bucket, we actually turn away. Uh, because when you come to us and you look at this as like, oh, this is another revenue stream for me. We're like, no, no, no. Like that's, that's not what this is. Like, who, could you give, could you, could, cause I understand what you just said, but could you explain what you meant by people who are creators adding a, cause you're basically saying like people who are like a YouTuber and then they are launching a course that supplements their revenue the way you would supplement revenue of a subscription. Who, who what are you talking about? Yeah. So, so it turns out that most people who are um, creators full time have a very diversified revenue. So. Some of it is coming through AdSense. Some of it is coming through selling through merch. Some of it is Patreon, donations, uh, online community memberships, online courses. So people thought like when this kind of cohort-based course trend was happening that they could just, you know, this is, oh, this is something else I kind of do. We, and, and I think there's some platforms that cater to that and they see it as kind of a liquidity event. Like, I, hey, I have this audience and I want to use a cohort-based course to create liquidity out of it. What we realized was that those weren't the people we wanted to work with because they generally don't have the patience to actually build amazing programs and, and scale it. Like the people we work with, this is not like a side thing. This is their thing. This is what they do. This is, they are educators first, creators second. And this is the primary way of how they monetize. And there's something really magical about that because again, they're teachers first, they're creators second. They, they create as a way to create distribution so they can do what they love to do, which is teach. That is so interesting. So here's the question then. You know, there's no need to no name names here, obviously, but are you suggesting that what part of creator courses wasn't working? Was it, oh, it doesn't scale? Was it there's this initial cohort of fans? But like you said earlier, it's really key that the fans have or the, the students have an incredible experience, have a high MPS, so they promote the second one. Where have been the failure points for people who've taken that approach? It's it's funny because when we go back to when we were talking about what causes online educational work, it's it's that transformation. And with these creators, it's interesting because it's both ways. It just doesn't work. Like they their students don't love the program and they actually hate doing it. Because almost immediately they kind of realize how much work it is. And I, I think this is actually a feature, not a bug, that to teach online is a lot of work. There's just so like you can't imagine you are running an online school. Yeah, help us, help us, help us understand. Yeah, give yeah. us the full, the full rundown. Just, just, just to think about it like this, right? Like you are 
any university has like a recruiting department, a marketing department, somebody who's kind of the registrar who processes the, all the payments. There's somebody who delivers the curriculum. You know, you have your counselors. You are all, all of those things are bundled. That's on your shoulders. And it is so hard. And, you know, at least I think one of the things that's what we try to do is how can we take that kind of burden off your shoulders? How, how, how can we automate as much of these tasks so you can focus on what you really want to be doing? But the key thing, though, to tie this together, if your point is, the thing that you need to be doing is teaching. That has to be, in terms of what you've, what you've just seen, the, the teaching thing has, you know, this is so interesting because this also goes to the good and the bad sides of, of higher education. Oftentimes, a lot of the teachers are there to research and they have to teach because that gets seats in the, you know, seats in the room. But there's just this really interesting Okay, so this is fascinating. I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, which means that we're, which means I'm having fun, so I appreciate it. But what it seems to be suggesting is that if you are not the right person to teach a, uh, let's say, a, you know, course online, you may have a lot of the flaws that actually impact learning in the higher education system. Um, so if you are a professor who's teaching, 600 undergraduates and all you actually really want to do once again this is totally fine i'm not dunking on anybody but what you really get excited to do first thing in the morning is research or write your next book it's not mentorship it's not getting nitty-gritty the same thing could be true if you're a creator who's like well the main thing i do is post a bunch of youtube and once again i'm not trying to besmirch posting a bunch of that makes this thing easy because that's not easy at all. But the main thing I do is I do, I have ad deals and I have to keep my Patreon subscribers happy. I have to manage my churn. That's okay. That's great. Um, any, any just reaction to that? I mean, it's, it's so spot on. And it just makes you think that like so so many like systems and institutions that are broken just come down to incentives, right? Like, you know, why is web three, you know, like DAOs, why is that so exciting to a lot of people? It just it's aligning incentives. And same thing with online education is it's aligning incentives. Teaching is very time consuming. Again, we talked about like a delivering a transformation. That takes a lot of work. Like to make sure that somebody goes from you know point A to point B is really hard, especially in a kind of live online course where you have to do it face to face versus like, you know, these pre-recorded online courses, which, you know, it, it works great. I think that actually is a great, you know mechanism for creators because that's something you build once and then you just like push content and you just sell 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 so it's very passive for them and they can do what they love to do which is create content but you know some people just love seeing that light bulb go off in their students head they just love to see that transformation those are the teachers i'm talking about and for them like this is this is all they want to be doing that's that's really great so um Ish, this has been a really great episode i think the last thing i'd love for you just give us a quick uh perspective on it's just like been your on-deck experience because obviously most of this conversation relates to things that we're working at here so i would, I would just to hear like an experience and any any perspective any learnings any just thoughts that have because you've actually done a couple episodes with on-deck people so i'm just genuinely and actually this is actually interesting too <laughs> this isn't just the commercial part of the episode i'm curious what you've learned or takeaways you've had from talking with people like joe penn um, who's at on deck and people like that I, I think on deck is building the great next institution. Like, like I truly believe it. I, having, I was skeptical, but I actually happened to go to the first cohort of on deck scale and just, I mean, Ty and the team have just done such an incredible job with that program. Like I was blown away and it just goes back to that like customer obsession. Like most professors, you, you go through the program, you, you know, you go through a semester, they take some feedback, maybe they, you know, fit, you know, make some changes. Ty and the team from day one were collecting data and feedback, and the experience just got better. They knew it was like the first quarter, they're like, things are going to be rough. The program from the beginning of the first quarter to the end looked completely different. And it went from being eh, like, okay, to just immensely valuable. And it just, it comes down to curated community. I think that is what makes these experiences so powerful is that when you bring the right people together, the education just follows. And I think that especially is important with online education because we're bringing people together who are on the cutting edge, where sometimes 
even the teacher can't really teach you anything. And I think that's one of the amazing things about on deck and on deck scale is like nobody pretends to like have the answers. We're all building startups that are really hard. And the best part about it is you're because of the curated community, everybody's in the, the stage that you are. And the education just follows. When you bring the right people in a room together, the education just follows. And so I just love this approach of where it's it's community first, education second, and and the caliber of people is just so high too. Um, it is just amazing, like how relevant the problems that everybody is having is to myself. Like I, we had our designer go on maternity leave a few months ago, and I could go into the Ondex Steel channel, and there was like a entire thread about people talking about maternity leave and exactly how they dealt with it. And as for a first time CEO, that was just immensely valuable. So. Again, I just I can't recommend the Onda community enough. It's been transformative to me, transformative to me, transformative to the business, uh, and I think more people should check out some of the fellowships. Well, that's uh, awesome. I think it's I think it's telling to the Ondeck Scale team that I really mean this. Scale fellows consistently give the most excitable um, and like very specific answer to that question. So um, good job, good job, team. If you're if you're listening, it's, this has been. Really great. Um, shout out the company, but also shout out the podcast. I'm excited I could say that. I was saying before, I think a lot of people dabbled with podcasts, people dabbled with newsletters. It's actually really impressive as a creator myself um, to see you actually stick with it, just get really good at it. So please just shout out everything people should go check, take a look at if they're interested in this space. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's I can't believe it. It's, it's been uh, over two years now, but uh, the podcast is called Reshaping Education. You can learn more about reshapingeducationpodcast.com uh, the website the company virtually uh, tryvirtually.com and I'm on Twitter at ishbade ish thank you for joining us in the deep end thank you Marshall thanks for joining us in the deep end if you enjoyed your stay give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.